It's a little intimidating being in the front row, isn't it? You're right up close to the action. <laughs> See if you regret that halfway through this. This morning, everyone, we got to participate and share in something very special. And Abby's baptism is going to lead right into what we're going to talk about today. And it's the vows that we take. So you're going to notice something a little different from her baptism today to Connor's last week. You notice the difference? One of those people was ready to take the vows to enter into covenant with this local family. And Abby is thinking about it. And you know what she said to me as we got together to talk about it, to get ready for her baptism? She said that she wasn't sure if she was ready for what it was going to take, what it would cost her. At that age already, understanding that making a commitment to someone else isn't about what you gain, but it's about what it costs of you. It takes a lot of maturity. And her and her family are brand new to this family. So is she ready to swear those vows to us? She's thinking about it. And today's sermon, as we go through the Testament, talk about the local church and what it is, we're talking about membership. We're talking about what does it mean to pledge yourself to the local church. I've been a member of a local church since I was 14 years old. I got baptized out at Kelstern Church, did my testimony from the tank. It was a paragraph on a piece of loose leaf, I think this long. I had no idea what I was doing. It was terrifying. I loved Jesus. I'd asked him to forgive and cover my sin. And I wanted to share with that with my whole church family. After that, I found out that my name went on a list. A piece of paper that comes out once a year. We vote on the budget. And my name is on that list. I had no idea what that list was or what that list meant, but my name was on that list. I had no idea what commitment to a local church family would look like. I had never really been taught that, but I've been a member ever since. And as we, me and Dawn, hope to work through the next few months, what does a healthy church look like? We're going to talk about all different aspects of a healthy church family. And right from the earliest days of scripture, you see people committed to their local family. But something that we often talk about, we use the terms, but we don't teach on it very often. But as I work through it with Abby and with Connor, we talk about it. What does that kind of commitment mean? What does it take? So today, we're going to venture through the New Testament and see if we can find some of those answers. Got my wedding ring on today. I don't know what yours looks like. Mine's a little brownish. It's made of silicone, so it's stretchy. Yours might be a little different. 
It's a symbol of a promise I made a long time ago. And this promise is going to cost me everything. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Me and Chantel could have lived in relationship together our whole lives if we wanted to. We wouldn't have had to make this kind of a promise. We could have just remained close friends, the closest of friends, our whole lives. And yet something, something's been passed down to us that we followed through in that led us to know that this relationship requires the highest level of commitment. So we went through the process of pledging our lives to one another sacrificially. Better or worse. Richer or poorer. She married a pastor, so definitely richer or poorer. (laughs) Till death, this promise will last. Why would we do that? Why commit to it? For the care that we receive from one another? For the accountability and the responsibility of leadership and submission that's required in it? Why would we do that? I think it's also a picture of what we're invited into in the local church. And it's not a perfect analogy. Not all the pieces line up. But for me, it helps me understand what I'm being welcomed into. But I also want to tell you what you're not being welcomed into before we read through Acts and Romans and Corinthians. When people ask me how my marriage is doing, if I'm enjoying it, what is being married like, do you know what I don't do? I don't run into the office, run to the filing cabinet, open it up, go through the folders, find the right one, pull it out, and run back to the living room. You want to hear about my marriage? Here it is. Marriage certificate. Come take a look at it. It's right here. This is it. Me and my wife, our whole lives promised to one another. Do you want to see it? They go, no, how are you doing? How are the two of you? Talk to me about your relationship. I go, I'm holding my relationship right in front of you. Can't you see it? That's not it. That's not it. And yet for years and years, that's what I thought membership was. I I thought it was a list. I thought it was a document that we pull up from time to time. A formal process. Isn't this it? We all signed up to help with decisions from time to time, part of the organization. Could it be more than that? When someone asks you how the marriage is doing, you talk about your relationship. You talk about your day-to-day life with one another. I tell you about what I love about raising kids with Chantel. I talk to you about her personality, how she makes me laugh, how I trust her, how she supports me, how she holds me accountable, and how I try to do the same to her. When people ask me about marriage, that's what I talk about. The pursuit of me pursuing her and her pursuing me. Me being a student of her and learning about her and her of me. The two of us becoming one. That's what we talk about. Garden of Eden, 
the wife is taken out of the husband and God said you're made to come back together and become one person. That's why at Bridgeway, when Connor asked about getting baptized, when Abby asked, we show them this. We show them a document that we created years ago to highlight the relationship. We're going to talk about this more in a few minutes. But what if it's more about the relationship that we have with God and with each other than it is a vote on a budget? What if this describes what life connected to this family is supposed to look like? This is one of maybe the more divisive topics you can talk about in a local church. So I'm going to try to wade through this carefully and do this correctly. And give me grace as I try to teach you what I see. Let's see if we can come to some conclusions together. Open your Bibles if you want to follow along. We're going to a few different locations to talk about what we see in the scriptures in regards to the local church. This is Acts. This is chapter 2. This is verse 42. Jesus now has ascended to heaven. He's died and been resurrected. Peter has preached the Pentecost sermon. And people have chosen to get baptized. Not just one, 3,000. Can you imagine 3,000 people going through that process? That would have taken a long time. And these people, as they are baptized... It says this, starting in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what did it look like for them? If they would have came to Peter and said, Peter, I want to get baptized. And Peter goes, excellent. Welcome to the family. You're part of our number now. And they go, oh, hey, what does it cost me to be part of this, to be a student and a follower of the Messiah? Well, we meet in each other's homes. We meet at the temple. We teach, and you listen. You participate in the fellowship. We break bread together, we pray together, and we give to one another sacrificially. How much do you give? We just sell our homes. Seems like a lot. Lots of us do it, it's fine. Do you have a field? I have a few. Why don't you sell a few? There's people who need help. Okay. We just give it to one another. What do we get in return? We, we follow Jesus. Oh, okay. I guess I'll go sell a field. Welcome to the family. 
being a part of their number looked like discipleship, doesn't it? At this time, though, there was only one church. There wasn't a whole bunch of them around the world. If you look in the commentaries, they talk about that word that they use in the Greek for church. And it's used to describe the whole church, everyone who's ever followed Jesus together. And it's also used for the local families of churches. Church in Corinth, the church in Rome, the church in Ephesus. And that word is used more in the New Testament for local family churches than it is for the whole broad church, but it's used for both. So something is connected between everyone who believes in Jesus and it's connected to the individual groups of Jesus followers in each city. But this is the example that we see in the book of Acts. Next I see it as I'm in Romans. If you want to see those verses, this is in chapter 12 of Romans. Now Romans is a unique church because there was conflict and that sets them apart from all the other churches because most churches don't experience pain like that, but theirs did. Crazy, hey? It just happens. There was division. In the Roman church, you had Jewish people and you had Gentile people. The Jews had been kicked out of Rome by Caesar for many years and then were welcomed back in. This you can study in world history. Something happened, though, when they came back in. The Jews and Gentiles had to learn how to worship God together again as one family. And there was intense conflict. They didn't get along very well at all. And you can read through the different chapters of Romans to see the things that they fought about. But it was about righteousness. The Jews had their practices. Their Torah teachings. Their understanding of Sabbath days and Old Testament laws. And they're pushing these as a form of worship on the Gentiles who didn't grow up with this and who weren't even taught this by Paul. So there's intense conflict. There's comparisons going on, right? I am the Christian who follows all of these commands. And you, you don't follow any of them. Shame on you. And this church is falling apart. So Paul writes this letter to them trying to explain to them that righteousness is a gift from God that we receive by our faith. It's not something we get by observing Old Testament law. And this family's being ripped apart, and he writes this in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 and on. You can read the whole chapter later if you want. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. He's going to go into a list of spiritual gifts that they need. All of these different gifts in their local church. And when you read the whole book for context, you realize he's trying to draw them back together. We're supposed to see each other as a body. You're part of it. I'm part of it. But we all need it. We need to be together and do this together. We can't shame and guilt one another out of the family. We lose a body part. 
You can't have church watching it on YouTube at home for the rest of your life. You're missing the rest of the body parts. You need everybody. We need to do this together. Luckily for us, Rome wasn't the only example of this. We get to thank the Corinthian church for that. And the Corinthian church is one of the nastiest churches you can read about in the Bible. The Corinthian church had people who were suing each other and taking them to court. People living terribly sexually immoral lives and the church was okay with it. People were getting drunk at communion and abusing the whole part of it, the whole service of it. Other people weren't even getting communion. It was ugly, ugly. And the worst part of it seems to be the fact that they were abusing their spiritual gifts. He talks about this. You can read this. Chapter 12, 13. Look at those chapters there. Some people had certain spiritual gifts and they used it as this way of kind of shaming and guilting each other. I have this gift and you don't. I have a greater gift and you have a lesser gift. I can speak in tongues and everyone can watch. You just have the gift of knowledge or you just have the gift of hospitality or care or mercy or compassion. What is that in the church? And it's ripping them apart. That's why he writes this famous chapter that we read at all the weddings. Love is patient and kind. He writes that in the middle of chapters about them fighting over their spiritual gifts. Because what was supposed to be used to draw the body together, they were using to tear it apart. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jewish or Greek, slave or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. He uses the example of a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear saying to one another, I don't need you. I don't need you. And he says, isn't that ridiculous? We're meant to all function in unity together. So why would you think that you can do this apart from everybody? Verse 27 of that same chapter. Now you are the body of Christ individually members of it. And he goes on to talk about these, again, spiritual gifts. Apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healings, helping, administering, all kinds of tongues. Are all of you prophets? Can all of you speak in tongues? Can you all do healings? No, not all of you. He says you should desire the gifts. You should. But I'll show you an even more excellent way than this. Love. Love one another. So as I'm trying to teach Connor, as I'm trying to talk to Abby about this, it's hard to put into words what this relationship looks like. It's hard to show them a piece of paper and explain to them what my relationship with my local church has looked like over the past 10 years. It's hard to say this is it. They're like my body. 
And the teenager looks at you and goes, what? Like, no, like, there's some feet and there's some hands. I don't, I'm the mouth? I talk? I don't know. Like, we're all part of this. Like, how do you describe to them what this is like? But they'll get it one day. Because when you start to participate in discipleship in your church, you grow as a disciple and you begin to disciple people. You are cared for and you're held accountable. It's this deep and beautiful relationship that grows over time. It's not supposed to be destructive. It's not supposed to isolate people. It's not supposed to make people look at each other differently like, I'm a great Christian and you're not. Their participation in the family was supposed to lead them all to the fullness of Christ, to maturity. You get that in Ephesians. You could read all sorts of things. This is Ephesians 4. Verse 4, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father over all. He's over all, through all, and he's in all. And then Paul, again, here in chapter 4, lists all these spiritual gifts and says that they, verse 12, are to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You're like, Darren, you've read this three times already. And I'm like, I know I've read this three times already. This is what it should look like. And you say, Darren, this is just everybody. It's every Christian in the world. Why do I need to be part of a local family? Well, these are all examples of it. He wrote to the Christians in Rome. Look at 1 Corinthians. He writes to the church in Corinth. They are all supposed to use their spiritual gifts to be one body that matures each other. The Roman Christians weren't supposed to be hands so that the Corinthian Christians could be feet and they together would become mature. They never met each other. They didn't live together. They didn't worship together. The individual churches were supposed to disciple one another. And yet, all these years later, I sit down with these young adults and we talk about it. And it's complicated, and it's tricky, and it's hard to describe. What does this mean? What is this going to cost me? What do I get out of this? You see, entering into the marriage isn't just sunshine and rainbows. Well, Chantel is sunshine and rainbows, but I mean, love you, sweetie. There's accountability in our marriage. There's submission going on. There's leadership going on. There's times when she scolds me and times when I scold her. There's times I step out of line. There's times when she does. We're not always best friends. But that needs to still exist within our relationship. Like here in the New Testament, when you get into Hebrews and into 1 Peter, it's going to talk about some of these things. Like I'll just read a few verses for you. Like In Hebrews 13, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's Hebrews 13, 17. 
So there's supposed to be leaders who keep watch. But I think this is detailed in more, maybe more accuracy, or just maybe in a more understandable way in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. This is convicting. 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There are people in the local church who are called by God to be the shepherds. And he calls them elders. That same word in the New Testament is used of an overseer or used of a pastor. Many, many commentator, commentary writers will tell you it's the exact same thing. And I didn't know that. It's the same thing. There are those among you who are called to be shepherds and pastors over you. They're not supposed to dominate over you. They're not supposed to be domineering. They're not supposed to serve out of compulsion. They're supposed to care for you. They're supposed to be an example for you. And one day the chief shepherd, the chief pastor is going to come. The chief overseer is going to come. And he's going to hand you a crown for shepherding his family. So something about being a part of the local church means coming under the headship of somebody. You see that in Ephesians when it talks about marriage. Within the marriage relationship, there's a form of submission to headship, a wife trusting the leadership of her husband, and it actually being a picture of Jesus and his church. All of us around the world submitting to the authority and the headship of Christ, who is the head. And then in these local families, as Peter is writing to them, they're supposed to be under-shepherds who work under Jesus, who shepherd the families. Paul writes to Timothy, who's living in Ephesus, and tells him that they need to go find shepherds in their city for their church they need shepherds. So what would that tell us? That individual churches needed individual shepherds. Like I'm sure Andy Stanley's a great guy. He's not going to shepherd you from his home. He doesn't know you. I don't know why. He's a better teacher than I am sure. Like all these different people you listen to and read their books. And it's beautiful that you're gaining teaching from these different people. I just use him as an example because he's in adult Sunday school class all the time. I, I am supposed to be one of the people who shepherds you, oversees you, elders you. 
I'm not as good of a teacher as some of those people. But I can break bread with you. I can be part of the fellowship with you. I can pray with you. I can give with you. I can serve with you. Hopefully provide oversight, accountability. If I see you not doing well, I talk to you. If I see you sinning, I come and confront you. And it is for your good and God's glory. A wife, her life is not stifled by having a good husband who takes care of her. Her life is enhanced. It's for her good to have someone to care for her. That was the pattern passed down from creation. There would be one who would be responsible to look after. And it is a blessing to have someone who oversees. And I think eldering was supposed to be a blessing for the shepherds and a blessing for the church. And yet so often, it doesn't look that way. Eldering looks brutal. And church life is complicated. And I hope that in the future, our elders get to experience pastoring the church along with me more than having to administrate the church, but pastor it, shepherd it, oversee it. All of these different Christians in all of these different churches were active in discipleship. And I think it's so neat that when I teach people what it looks like in our church, do you trust in Jesus for your forgiveness and salvation? Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And are you committing to love your neighbor as yourself here in our church? One, two, three. That's what it is. If you pledge to be a member, you pledge to be a disciple along with us. Are you in? For richer or poor, sickness or health, are you in? What does it cost you? There's an incredible cost to being a disciple. God is now the ruler of my life. I submit all things to him. It costs me everything. What do I gain out of this? Godly leaders who care for me hold me accountable. Brothers and sisters who use their spiritual gifts to sharpen me as I try to use my spiritual gifts to sharpen them. You get a community that surrounds you and loves you and prays for you. All of these things we gain. And yet the hardest part still remains. The question of why. Couldn't I gain all of these things without committing to the family? And I've thought about this a lot. All of you sitting here, you're, you're gaining something from being a part of this body. So am I saying those who aren't a member aren't a part of the body? Am I saying that those here who are not committed, members are only subpar Christians? What am I saying? What I'm saying, what I'm trying to say, is that every single one of us should be a committed disciple to Jesus. We shouldn't be creating a church family full of spectators, consumers, who come to consume a product, be entertained by a service. 
We should be creating a family where everyone is active, using their spiritual gifts, sharpening one another, submitting to authority, being held accountable, all of those things in some sort of healthy balance should exist in our family. And that's what I think we all need to be invited into. And if there are people who have been part of our church family for a long time who haven't committed to this life of discipleship, then we should invite them in. We should invite them in. I want more for you than singing the songs. I want more for you than giving an offering. I want more for you than listening to a pastor's teaching. I want you to be discipled and to disciple someone. I want you to love God and love one another. I want that for you. And we should all be able to commit to that. But there's a cost to that. There's a cost to that. But we should pay it and commit to it. And I think through Abby's testimony, you see that she's going to commit to living as an active disciple. Connor's going to commit to living as an active disciple. What if membership started there? What if every person didn't feel shamed and guilted into joining, but felt so invited and compelled they saw the health that comes out of being an active disciple that they couldn't imagine not being an active disciple in the church? People come here to attend a service and they leave thinking, man, I just got to be a part of this family. I just have to be a part of this. The way it shapes me, the way I'm growing, I need to participate. What if membership felt like that? That's what I hope it feels like, because that's what I feel like it looks like. Is there a place for a formal commitment? Yeah, I think there is. Is there a place for the formal exchanging of a pledge? I think there is. Is there value in sharing your testimony with the church family? I think there is. Is there value in participating in the direction and future of the family through a meeting? I think there is. But I think it's more than this. I think it's discipleship plus participation in this. That's what I think membership could look like in a healthy church. If you look in the book of Acts, they were having their first AGM by Acts chapter 6. People weren't getting fed. They called all the elders together, had a big meeting, made a plan, sent out the deacons to go feed people. It wasn't easy either. There was upset people. They had to get some business done. But do you know what scares me about this list? And it might surprise you what it is. Most of our church family's on it, but a large chunk of our church family's not on it, and that makes me really nervous. And here's why. Because in a month from now, you are gonna be deciding the next shepherd of your family. The next pastor of your family, the next overseer of your family. And a lot of you won't get to participate in that decision because you haven't become part of the formal part of the family. Do I think you get excluded from heaven if you're not on the list? Nah. No. Do I think if you stopped going to church 20 years ago, you should come off the list? 
Yeah. Otherwise, I don't think it means very much. Are a quarter of the people on this list no longer going to church here? Yeah. Seems kind of silly to me. They're not part of the family anymore, but it's not perfect. It's not a perfect system. And I don't think these are bad people. I think it's confusing and complicated and messy. But in a month from now, when we're picking our next pastor, everyone should be a part of that. That's what I feel. You know quorum is 39 people? I don't want 39 people picking the next pastor. I want 200 people picking. Do I think that we should just scrap the formality of it and let it go? I don't think so. I think the formal aspect of my relationship with Chantel is beautiful. I think the fact that we exchanged vows and there's documentation of it is beautiful. I don't think that takes away from our closeness in our relationship. And it's not a perfect analogy, but I think this is okay too. I just want to see all of you on it. That way, on that day, when we pick the shepherd, everyone's a part of it. Not just half of us. You might disagree on some of the things I've said about membership, and I'm willing to admit I'm still learning about it. That's okay. Let's read our Bibles together and let's keep learning what it looks like to participate in the local church. Maybe we'll all learn something as we discuss it together. But here's how I want to end. No one should get shamed or guilted into joining the family. I wouldn't get down on one knee and ask Chantel to marry me by shaming her or guilting her into choosing me. So I'm not going to sit down with the young people in our church and shame and guilt them into joining. I'm going to invite them. I'm going to tell them why I think it's a beautiful promise and commitment to make. I'm going to tell them why I think active discipleship is what every Christian needs to commit to. And I'm going to invite them in. And I hope every single one of them says yes to that commitment. But there is weight to that commitment. And the cost needs to be considered. So I'm going to invite you in. And maybe you've never been a member. Maybe after today you still won't want to. But I'm going to invite you into it. I want you to consider counting the cost of being an active disciple in our church. And I want you to consider whether being part of our formal aspect of membership, voting on direction and vision and a pastor, may be something you should consider being a part of. But this is an invitation, not a scolding. I want to pray over you before we go home. I love you guys so much. And I hope that Abby in time gets to know all of you the same way I do. We're a family. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, the one who dwells on the mountain in unapproachable light. The one who chose to come down and to put his tent in the middle of the people. The one who sent his son to live in the midst of his creation, to welcome me home, to bring me near. Who became the offering. 
God, thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for me and all you've done for my family. Thank you, God, for how you've invited all of us into a life of active discipleship and it changes our lives. It glorifies you. It's for our good. Thank you, Lord, that all those years ago you convicted a 14-year-old to get in the tank and share his little testimony at his church. And now he's just one member of the body. And I want to thank you for every person who's a part of this family. Those who've been a part of it their whole lives and those who've just started coming the last few months. Lord, would you bless them? Would they be sharpened and built up, unified and loved in this place by this family? Lord, would you bring spiritual gifts and rise them up in them so that they can use them to sharpen me? Because I need these people. Lord, would you use my spiritual gifts to bless them and to shape them and mold them, to build them up? Father, would you bless this family as we commit to one another to love you and to love and serve each other? Would you be glorified, God, by our worship, our devotion, our sacrifice to you. Father, would you just guard the words that I've spoken? Would you, Lord, just dispel anything that I said that wasn't right, wasn't honoring to you? And would you use these words to build your church, not tear it apart? Holy Spirit, you are the convictor of hearts and souls, so I pray that you'd speak to me what I need to hear and speak to our family what we need to hear. Thank you, Lord, for the shepherds that you've called to take care of our family and the shepherds who haven't yet stepped up to shepherd this family. God, are there more? Would you equip us with the spiritual gifts to love your family, to oversee them, and to build them up and love them? Not to be cruel to them or hurt them, not to domineer over them, but to actually provide loving care and accountability. Lord, did you take care of our young people? We're just learning what this family means and what it, what it costs to be part of this relationship. Would you welcome them in and help them to understand? And Lord, as we get ready in the next few weeks to pick our next pastor and our next shepherd, Holy Spirit, give us insight and wisdom Tell them what it is that we need. Who is it you would pick to care for us? Speak to us clearly so that we know. You are holy, holy, holy. And one day we're going to sing to you that song forever. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your resurrection. Thank you that you've defeated death and offered us brand new life. And we have everything in the world to be thankful for. So we thank you and we praise you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, you guys. You're dismissed.